you don't always want to put everything in the patent because that has a limited monopoly. So when the patent expires and you've basically given someone a roadmap to copy your product. You're listening to Stories from the Top, an inside guide to better business development. We are here with Susan Springsteen, the co-founder and partner at Nth Solutions and president of H2O Connected. To start out, can you just explain what those businesses are for people who may not know? Sure. First of all, it's great to be here. So excited to talk about business and business wisdom with both of you. Um, and Solutions, I co-founded with my business partner, Eric Canfield, in 2006. It is a product development, manufacturing, and business incubation company. We take innovative ideas. Our tagline is advancing innovation from concept to revenue. So we really are vertically integrated. We take something from concept on a napkin all the way through the development process, protect it with intellectual property if that, you know, most of the things we do are patentable or have a lot of trade secrets involved. Um, optimize, test it. We do market studies, optimize it for manufacturing, do the manufacturing, and then either we distribute it or if we're in partner with someone, they usually distribute it. So it's a vertically integrated company. Um, H2O Connected was spun off from N Solutions. Um, N Solutions developed a water technology that we can talk about later. Uh, we spun it off into its separate business in 2019, and it developed um, a multi-patented technologies that can literally detect every type of water loss problem that can occur in a tank toilet. And we have wireless and, and non-wireless products and, and dashboards and all kinds of data. And it's just really a great device that's starting to take off. Awesome. Yeah, we definitely want to dive into all yeah. of that. Um, so just to start out to get a little background on you, um, what did you originally go to school for? I went to Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. It's a Christian liberal arts co uh, college right outside of Chicago. And actually, for the first three years, I was a biochemistry major. I'm a horse fanatic, and that was the closest I could get to horses at Wheaton. So, um, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and I was very frustrated. And as a junior, I um, had to take my fruit flies home over Christmas break and count their eye types every day for genetics class. And that was the tipping point for me. I absolutely quit, dropped out of school. I was done. Um, and then I waitressed for about six months, decided that was not going to be a long-term career choice for me, and uh, went back, changed my major my senior year to business and economics, and actually graduated on time. One of my greatest accomplishments in my life to do my entire major in one year. So yeah, business and economics. So you graduated with business economics. What, what did you start doing for work outside of school once you were done? I didn't have any great plan. Uh, I, I ended up meeting someone who needed um, an analyst who worked for an investment bank uh, named Butcher and Singer. In Philly, there's a restaurant now where the retail, the stock brokerage office was called Butcher and Singer, but it was a 200-year-old investment bank when I went to work for them in the early 80s. And um, he did loan workouts for banks and packaged them as investments. They were usually real estate related, and, I, and he just needed somebody. So I thought, well, beats interviewing. So I went and worked for him, and it was a fascinating job. Um, I think originally they hired me to be a secretary, but I, when I got there, I told them I didn't know how to type because I didn't want to be pigeonholed. So I ended up as an analyst. And, um, and really, he, he was one of these guys that took his 
proteges everywhere with him. And so I got to meet a lot of people, got to sit at a lot of interesting tables and listen to very interesting conversations about deals and how they got done. It was a great learning experience. And then I went into his business was changing and I went over into the, at the time it was retail stock brokerage. I became a stockbroker and, um, and then morphed into managing money on, on a fee basis and worked for probably four different brokerage firms developing financial advisory practices in each of them. How many years were you doing that? 20, not quite 30, 25, 28. Yeah. So almost a full career worth I, of time in there. It was, it was, it, it was, um, I really enjoyed it. Did a lot of, I, I was tangentially involved in corporate finance and municipal finance and bringing in deals and buying and selling companies. I worked mostly for regionals. The last firm I worked for was Morgan Stanley, and um, I had a partnership there with a, a really smart guy um, that ran the money, and I would be more the, you know, bringing in the, the clients and and doing the strategy. Um, so, but while I was there, I we managed a lot of money for small business owners, and I realized they were asking me questions about business that I couldn't really answer it from a real world perspective because I didn't, I never had money at risk in a small business. So I decided if I was going to be more effective in advising them on their small businesses outside of just the assets that they had, the liquid assets that they had, that I needed to have money at risk in a small business. And that's what started have, having me look around and trying to find what kind of business could I invest in where I could be involved on an operating basis, sort of on the side. And um, I'd had other businesses before. Um, I'm an active rider, so I had a riding small um, riding training practice, and but nothing that really had tangible products. So through church, I met my business partner, and he um, had, ran the product development uh, side of a manufacturing company and was looking at these water conservation initiatives and technologies. And um, so I was fascinated with that. And eventually we bought the contents of his office and started End Solutions. So that's how End Solutions came to be. And I did both money management and, and, and he really ran End Solutions and the staff there, I would come down at sort of four o'clock and, you know, I would work during the evening down there and then do the money management during the day. And it just, I was also doing the business reports for KYW News Radio, and I was competing with my horse in Florida. It was just getting to be too much. So I had to make a choice. So in 2010, I went full-time at End Solutions. So what was that transition like then going from doing multiple things, a lot of financial stuff to just working within a business that you were responsible for? Well, I still kept, you know, I was still involved with the horses. So it wasn't quite just one focus, but it was great to be able to really focus in one area. You know, I had, um, I don't come from an engineering background. So from the industry knowledge and the product development, I, you know, I leaned on my team. I have an incredible team with a lot of core competencies. Um, but the, I certainly brought my business knowledge from the investment world and the corporate finance world. And, um, and then you just learn as fast as you can. You know, I just, it was great to be able to focus. But one of the interesting things about End Solutions is that it, it's not just product development in one industry. So you still get the feeling that you're involved in multiple industries and multiple things because, you know, we developed a line of traffic signal preemption products. If you see a first responder running hot down the road, we make what goes in their light bar that changes the traffic light 
from um, red to green so they can travel safely at speed through an intersection and clear traffic. So we make that, but then we were also developing water conservation products. We also developed a very sophisticated hands-free faucet for another company. So we develop products for ourselves, but we also will work right alongside other inventors that come to us. Um, and we frequently discount our development fees for a stake in the business that's going to be incubated around that technology. So it's um, so, and then we also develop products for companies that don't have in-house product development capability. So there's three different types of relationships that we have. Um, so it, it does get the feeling that you're still doing, you're still wearing multiple hats. So when you were first getting started with this business, um, who were those partners that you partnered up with and what were the roles that you each had in this business? Well, Eric Canfield, who's my business partner, um, he he oversaw product development. He also has a very um, deep knowledge base in intellectual property. Um, so he's, you know, if you look him up on the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, I think he's got 40 patents just to his name that have been issued. Most of, And I think all of them are generating revenue or most of them are generating revenue. Interesting, interesting fact, fun fact, only 3% of issued patents ever generate revenue for the SNE. Most of them just hang on a wall. So, and less than those generate a profit. So, we're pretty proud of the fact that our patents are generating revenue. Yes. And um, and so he he has, a, and then he also would oversee uh, manufacturing. The manufacturing was pretty small at that point. And then we had another engineer in house that would that was great with mechanical design and board layout and would support Eric. And then uh, we brought in a controller who also had a deep human resources background who would support me. And then we had some other folks that just, you know, did um, hand placement of parts and ran ran the pick and place machines and things like that. So it was a very small but very diverse team. And that's true. When you start a business, everybody's wearing multiple hats. Because unless somebody, unless you raise, you know, ten million dollars as a startup, you're, you you've got a, everyone's, everyone's pitching in, you know. So, you've got CEOs cleaning the bathroom, you know. It's just the way it is. You, and you know, you have your own business. Right, you yes. do whatever it needs to do to get the job done right. and to meet deadlines and do fabulous work for your customers. So when you guys were formulating Nth Solutions, I guess that didn't exist till you guys came together, right? Well, we bought the contents of his office. So I had, the, you know, there were things that I could, we could literally hit the ground running. And we had some clients that stayed with us right from the beginning. So was there, like, did you guys set up any kind of agreement? Like, this is what I'll be responsible for. This is what you'll be responsible for. Or was it kind of like, we're just going to work together on whatever it takes to get things done? Well, the roles were pretty obvious. I mean, it was pretty obvious that my highest and best use was not in engineering. So, it, you know, it was really... And because in the beginning, I was still at Morgan Stanley, he was overseeing engineering and really running the business. We did bring in an office manager right from the beginning, and that was great, too. So, you know, she could handle all the QuickBooks and, you know, shipping and receiving and answering the phones and all this sort of administrative things. Um, so we didn't... While we talked a lot of, about it, it was pretty obvious what the roles were going to be. So what was the catalyst to get you out of Morgan Stanley completely and fully into and solutions then? It became obvious that I had to make a choice, and I was becoming less and less enamored with the investment world. It, it really had changed a lot 
um, when I in the 80s and 90s, you could stay really close to the customer and manage money and set strategy. And by the time I left, you were really just placing money with fee-based money managers for the most part. Or, you know, the, there was a lot of, it's also different at a large firm than at a regional where you were the founder or the founder's son, you know, is still there running the business. Um, you know, the big warehouses are just very different and it wasn't an environment that I really wanted to be involved with anymore. And, and I wanted to do something different. You know, when you start your own business, you can set culture. And, you know, we, it, we can hire people. You know, we also have, it's a four, these are all for-profit businesses, but we also have a big heart for community and sort of a mission focus. And there are times when, then, for instance, Eric will meet someone living out of their car in a Walmart parking lot trying to get home. They don't have any money. We're not going to just hand them a check, but we'll bring them in and teach them how to, you know, how to prepare sensors for three days. They'll make enough money to have gas to go home. So I can do those things as a business owner that I couldn't if I, if I was just a, ma um, a manager in manufacturing. So those are the kinds of things I think for impact was a big issue, too. And everything we make either either um, saves money, saves lives, or preserves natural resources. So we could focus on really improving quality of life for people through what we develop, and that was important to us too. And we wanted to have um, we wanted to focus on made in America electronic products because everything in '06 was going overseas, and people so many people were losing their jobs in the manufacturing sector, and we knew we couldn't change the world. But we could change. We could help the people that came to work for us. Um, so, um, so made in America manufacturing has been a big mission. So that was part of the impetus. So you were talking about company culture. Um, can you describe for us um, what, like, what are you intentionally creating in your company culture? Well, it's it's still small, and so it's very. Uh, I would say it's very horizontal. I, even though there are there is a hierarchy, there has to be right because Eric and I are the owners. And um, but in a meeting, it's not hierarchical. It's you know, and everyone has access to everyone else, and we really respect everyone's opinion. It doesn't matter what your role is. We want to hear what you think, um, and I think um, I think that's a bit. You, that's a little bit like a startup. It has that startup mentality where everybody has access to everybody and there's a lot of cross-pollination. And we we have kept that as we've grown. Um, the other thing is the sort of the missional aspect. Um, for instance, when we were in Exton, and even now that we're in Coatesville, um, people know they can come into our office for prayer. So we've had people that kind of snicker about, you know, the Christians around the corner, but when their life falls apart, they're coming into our office for prayer. <laughs> so um, you, today you can't do that in a lot of businesses. So, um, so there's, there's that aspect, um, I think, and that really, I think. And we also have been able to uh, develop um, a large uh, long-term high school internship program. We have 10 to 15 high school interns. They come as juniors and they work for us for two years till they leave for either college or their next phase in life. Um, and they work alongside the professionals to develop products and launch them into the marketplace. And so they're really, and we have an engineering track and a marketing track. And frequently they end up working on 
intellectual property, so they'll oftentimes act, end up as named inventors on patents when before they're 18 years old. And those are things that take a lot of time and input from the staff and, you know, the professionals. So I'm not sure we would be able to do that if we were just part of another division. And it's something that has really, we feel, has been very important for sowing into the next generation. So is your faith a part of the core values of the business, or is it kind of an overflowing of your personal life in uh, in that culture together? Or um, I would say, first, it, a business is a reflection of your core va- of the core values of the leaders, whether they're aware of it or not. So it's not it's not like it's something we force on anybody. Not everybody who works for us, you know, shares our faith. That's fine, um, but it it permeates how we think. It permeates how we view things, and it and um, you know, I would hope that it's consistent with the way we we you know we run and run the business and deal with our our employees. And it it um, I think it. It, it it we get involved in a lot of things on a community level on a one-on-one level that I'm not I don't know if we would do if we didn't have such a strong um, commitment to being the hands and feet of Jesus. So it 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 does permeate, but but we it's not you know we're not pounding the table about it. It's just we just try and live it out every day. And people have questions, and when they have questions, we we're happy to answer them. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, for the business development side of things, once you guys started in 2010, what was your guys' strategy you used to grow and build and solutions? Well, we started um, with a client. Our strategy was that we would have a couple of product development clients, and that would fund the business, and then we would work on our own technologies, p- specifically the uh, water te- technologies. Um Nothing ever goes according to plan when you start a business. You know, we all know that. Murphy's Law will put you on speed dial. Um, So our client ended up, our largest client ended up getting into a family. It was a privately held company. got into a family disagreement and shut down product development. So that was the first, oh, no. So we did, we ended up getting some other contracts, um, but it did we had to start focusing more on bringing other contracts in initially and um, and then, you know, th- less of a focus on the water technology for a couple of years. So, yeah, in that moment where he pulls out or they pulled out, what do you guys do to get those other contracts? It's not just call someone and ask for them. Right. There's a long lead time because these, you know, when you're developing technology contracts, they can be hundreds of thousands or a million dollars, depending on how sophisticated it is and what's involved. So they, there's a long lead time. So, um, you know, I had, to, I had to carry the company for a while while we got smaller contracts and then bigger contracts. And, you know, so, you know, it's, it's what happens when you're an entrepreneur. What do you mean you had to carry the company? I had to liquidate some of my, you know, I had to, I had to put money in because, you know, as that was one of my big contributions in the beginning anyway, was there was this, you know, I wanted, I needed, it needed funding to start, you start a business, you need capital. So I provided that in the beginning and then I had to supplement our revenue when, you know, if a, if a client, you know, when this particular client decided to, and he didn't just shut it down. I mean, it, it dwindled over time, but it was a pretty short period of time. So, 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 what was your guys' strategy to find new product development clients? I just, it's just um, 
looking for, we actually had, well, um, we did build up our own, um, I'm trying to think, it was that long ago. You know, when something like that happens, you're sort of in crisis mode. So you try and sit back and have a strategy, but it's really getting out there and talking to whoever you can, getting in front of other inventors and um and then we also, until we got another contract, we had a smaller one, but until we got another larger one, um, we ended up um, just trying to get our products re- ready for revenue. So getting uh, Priority Green, we finished that line, got that ready for revenue, started getting that, you know, sales in from Priority Green, which helped. And then just being lean, very, very lean, you know, we we kept we were like overcrowded rats in our office you know so just trying to keep the expenses really low and um until we were able to get you know to get we were able to get in front of some folks eric had contacts in the product development world he had friends who had contacts so you you work your network that's the quickest way is referral right it's one thing i learned in the investment business it takes a fraction of the time to get a client from a referral than it does from a cold call so we work the referral network. Yeah, that's definitely what we've found in our business too. Is the referrals are definitely the best. And you know, he's you know, he had as a real pedigree. I mean, we can show off the patents. Usually we'll when someone thinks they may want to work with us or has an idea, they'll call us and they can come in, we'll give them an hour or two, we'll talk about their idea where they don't have, you know, just gratis, um, so they can get a sense for how we think. And, um, and then we can give them some advice as to, you know, whether or not their idea is, is worth pursuing. Sometimes it's a great idea, but it's just too niche. So it's not going to, it may not have enough revenue to support itself as a business beyond just kind of a cool little thing. Um, other, other times it's going to be so expensive to get it into production or, you know, there, it, it, you may not be able to, get if they're going to distribute it through retail they may need you know may not have the ability to sell it expensively enough that there's two tiers of distribution in between what they need to make and what the client will pay we start everything and we tell this to anybody wants to work with us we start everything with market research you've got to know who your customer really is you know a lot sometimes people come in to talk to us and they have an idea and their family says what a great idea you should get it made and go on shark tank um, but they don't really know, you know, is there, is there a patent that already precludes them from, from developing this or, or, you know, selling it eventually without infringing? Is there, is there really a, a big enough market and, and what does it need to look like to truly have, grab market share? You know, so that's a, that's a real art form and, um, in, doing market research. So we start everything there because you can save somebody a lot of money. A lot of individuals are going to liquid, you know, they're going to take an equity stake in their house or, you know, if it's an individual, companies have a budget for it. But individuals will be borrowing, guess, their 401k. I don't want them to do that if they're not going to end up with something valuable at the end. So the market study really is really paramount. And you had mentioned getting products ready for revenue. So what specifically are you thinking about and and working on when you're getting those products ready for revenue? Well, that's the other reason you want to start with a market study, because we always design to the market. And you will continue. And it's one of the things I think that makes it beneficial that we're vertically integrated so that our customers aren't going, or we're not, if we're doing it for ourselves, we're not 
going somewhere to have somebody else do a market study and then somebody else doing development, somebody else doing intellectual property. Now we don't, we, we work with patent attorneys, so we don't actually write the patents, but we do all the strategy. We help write the claims and specifications, but we work with actual, we're not patent attorneys. Um, and then, and then having someone optimize it for manufacturing. It's, we have a saying at End Solutions, you can get anything to work once. It's working over it in being reliable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so it's taking it from that prototype level into the sort of proof of concept level, which is where you can test it. And then you have to get it ready for manufacturing, which is how can it be mass produced? So it may, the circuit board may look totally different from proof of concept to mass produce because you want all those components to be on that board in the most efficient way possible, you know, to keep production time down. And then you have to have all the processes for assembly. And, you know, so how that's a whole part. So all of that is with the idea of what is your market? Who is your customer? What will they pay for it? Who's going to distribute it? Are you going to sell it through a website? Or are you going to sell it through, you know, um, a hardware store? You know, those are, you need more more room for distribution if you're going to sell it to a hardware store than if you're just going to have it on your own website. Are you going to sell it through Amazon? The other thing we use a lot is we research, it, you know, um, Amazon. If we're bringing out a, um, a product, people are going to go to, even if they don't buy it on Amazon, they're going to see if it's on Amazon to see what the reviews are. And then if, if in the sort of, even if there's not something that's exactly like what we're bringing out, there's something that's maybe close. So I want to see what the one star reviews are on that product, because that'll tell me what cut to make sure what hot buttons we really hit. You know, the kiss of death on an actual product is a one star Amazon review. If you're going to sell on Amazon, those one star reviews will kill you. So you when we're doing market research, we look what is if we can find a similar product, um, what are the five-star reviews? What do people like about it? And what do people hate about it? And we want to avoid what people hate about it. <laughs> so. How did you guys develop your market research technique or strategy? Um, we really, we're really good sleuths. You know, it, you, you have to bring it from everywhere. We walk up and down the aisles of Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, hardware stores, you know, a Best Buy all the time. What's out there? You know, what's coming out? what's being discontinued and why. Um, we do a lot of talking with people in the store aisles, getting information from them. And then it's, you know, you just, you read about different industries, you see what's coming down the road. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's not only what's here, but what what's not here, but should be. You know, er, um, Eric tells a story that when he was younger, his he came home from school one day and was talking to his dad, and he was telling him about this exercise the teacher made them do, where they took 30 or 40 items, put them on a table, you look at them for a minute, turn around and write down what you remember. And it, I rem and his dad said to him, it's not what on the table that's important, it's what not what's not on the table, but should be. And that's that to me is it really encapsulates innovative, developing innovative products. You know what's not on the table but should be. So that's what we're always trying to to look for in our market research. So, if there's an inventor out there with an idea, can they come to you? Is that where some of these new ideas come from, or do you make all the ideas in house, or how does that work? We certainly we have a laundry list of ideas are everywhere. 
So, but yes, I mean, we'll do things. We develop products for ourselves, but we also, and Solutions also works for, uh, works with in, inventors that have an idea, but, you know, it's a lot of them just literally have a concept on a napkin or they have a very crude prototype and they just don't know how to get it from where they are to a product they can sell. And so that's, they call us and we'll sit down and talk to them at, you know, and with at no charge just to get for the, so we get to know each other we can get a sense of what they want give them some ideas um and um and then we'll go from there you, and we start with a market study either they do it or we do it but we always start with the market and then we continue to go to the market so an example of that actually would be um how h2 i am um, h2o connected came to be because um for instance, in two, uh, I guess it was the late 90s, actually, um, Eric has uh, four daughters and three sons, and his four daughters were overflowing the toilet. I, I think they did it you know, three times in a matter of months. And the last time, he was sitting at his kitchen table eating soup, and he had toilet water coming through the ceiling, hitting him on the head. And that was it. So he thought, yeah, that's it. I'm going to, at the time, Heckinger's was still in business. So he said, I'm going to Heckinger's, and I'm going to find the solution to toilet overflows. Couldn't find a solution, couldn't find it anywhere. Um, then went to the patent office to see if there had been any any patents done on prevention of toilet overflows. There were 150, none of them had been commercialized. So he then did his own market study, 300 and some million toilets in North America alone. Now there's 350 million tank toilets in between the US and Canada. So he knew there was a big market and uh, went about inventing you know, a device that would automatically stop water when it sensed the toilet was about to overflow. And that's where he was just in the prototype stage when he and I met. Um, we took it to where we were going to start to, we, we filed the intellectual property on it and we were going to uh, launch it into the marketplace when we realized the injection molds were gonna be extremely expensive and the liability insurance, if the product failed, was also gonna be expensive. So we decided then to pivot and look at toilet leaks because that way had a similar issue. Market's still big, it's still 300, at that point, 10 million toilets. This was now 2007. Um, so we developed the leak alerter, the first leak alerter that would go on the outside of a toilet tank and and actually listen to the turbulence inside the tank and could tell the difference between a leaking toilet and a properly functioning toilet. And that's, so that's an example of market study and a pivot where we hit a roadblock. So that's where this leak alerter came from. Um, can you just describe in a little bit more detail, how does this product work? What function does it serve? What problem does it solve? Okay. Um, of the 350 million tank toilets in North America, all of them at some point, or virtually all of them, will leak, run, and overflow, which in you know is not only wasting water, but it's running up a, a, your water bill. If you have a high water bill, nine times out of 10, you've had a running toilet. A running toilet where the chain hangs up or the flapper doesn't close properly wastes four and a half to five and a half gallons per minute. So if you're not in the house and you don't hear it, it's in a basement, it's in a toilet in a basement, or you're at work, or you're on vacation, 7,000 gallons a day. So imagine you're a hotel with 100 toilets, and housekeeping, you know, cleans the toilet, flushes it, and leaves, and you don't rent, the chain hangs up, and you don't rent the room for four days. 
that and that that's twenty eight thousand gallons of water, and it's about four to five hundred dollars extra on the water bill for the hotel. And we actually had that happen early on where we were testing it, and that's exactly what happened. And uh, we were testing the Leak Alerter Pro, the wireless version. So anyway, we um, we wanted to first bring out a leak alerter for the homeowner um, because if you're paying the water bill, you're more likely to to fix the issue. And they didn't need the wireless version for homeowners. And we wanted to test to just make sure we had the leak detection side of the technology dialed in. So we did that first with the leak alerter. Um, originally, it was the device that actually listened for turbulence. Uh, we discovered that it could it would occasionally be triggered by hair dryers and singing in the shower and things like that. So we decided to then change the operating system to detect leaks based on rise and fall of water height over time in the toilet. So we totally changed the operating system and brought out the leak alert of 6,000. By that time, we were in the sixth generation, and that was in 2016. We took it off the market during the recession because nobody cared if their toilets were leaking. They just wanted, you know, back in 2007, 2008. And then the business recession really didn't start to turn around in, in, in earnest until 2012. Um, so we had it on the shelf for a while because we just didn't think we'd be able to sell enough to make it worth the investment, the marketing investment, and then took it back out, changed the operating system, and we've got tens of thousands out there now of the Leak Alerter 6000. We've got tons of five-star reviews, sell it on Amazon and on our website. But we knew the long-term view was we wanted to do a wireless version. We had so many calls coming in from apartment owners and student housing and hotels saying, I love your product, but my guest or my tenant isn't going to tell me when the red light's blinking, the way the original one worked was it went on the outside. It still works. goes on the outside of the tank, and it has a red light, green light approach. You know, when you flush the toilet, the device says, oh, someone's in the bathroom. And it flushes green to tell you everything's okay. Flushes red and beeps if there's an issue. And depending on how it's flashing and beeping, it'll tell you that identifies exactly what the problem is. You know, is it a, is it a flapper needs to be replaced? Is it going to run? Is it going to overflow? So the wireless version, um, they wanted a wireless version. We wanted to put it inside the tank, so no, you know, guests weren't worried if it was a camera or if it was, you know, a listening device. They just they didn't see it; it wouldn't be tampered with. Um, so we put it inside the tank, and it, it actually sends a text message to maintenance if there's a major issue, and then reports everything else on the dashboard for every toilet on the property, um, and we can quantify gallons per flush, and we can quantify every, you know, faulty fill valves, faulty flush valves, both uh, running toilets, overflowing toilets. We also can detect when the flush volume is so is greater than what's optimized for the toilet. A lot of toilets, low-flow toilets, can flush at 1.28 gallons. A lot of them are set at 2.5 or 3 gallons per flush, so they're wasting water. So, And we're finding we are saving enormous amounts of water for people when they fix things. We have found that 80% of the toilets in our that in the installs that we've done so far over on an average over and it's pretty consistent from building to building um, have at least one and they're 80% of the toilets have at least one problem or are wasting water. It's pretty amazing. And until we came with this technology, nobody would know, right? Because the water is going from the tank down the bowl down into you know, back into the system. You're not seeing water on the floor. So they have no idea that their, that their water bill is 30% higher than it should be. 
So what drove you guys, <clears throat> excuse me, what drove you guys to spin H2O Connected off of End Solutions with Leak Alerter? Good question. Um, we we knew we would need to make the wireless version. We were going to need to raise some capital. And so um, we knew that investors like to invest in a theme. And End Solutions had a variety of different products and ownerships and other you know, joint ventures and things like that, that we thought it would be just really difficult to explain. So we also wanted, a, you know, a new vehicle. So we took all the assets that were water related, the patents, the trade secrets, the, the injection molds, inventory, everything, and moved it over into a separate company called H2O Connected. We also wanted to at the same time, um, the Qualified Opportunity Zone had become part of the 2017 um, Job uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act, or, you know, I get those two mixed up, but job, um, and the 2017 that passed, and that was going to give investors and companies in distressed, in Qualified Opportunity Zones that have been designated in distressed areas, um, some benefits. So we wanted to have H2O Connected be a qualified opportunity zone business. And that's actually what led me to Coatesville because that's the qualified opportunity zone for Chester County. So, but that's, you know, both of those things. And then we were able to, you know, we raised capital and and uh, developed the Leak Alerter Pro. And also there we're close on the Toilet Tracker, which is a data um, collection device so um, if someone doesn't need the reporting, we can go in and give them a toilet tracker and it'll tell them all the, pull all the data for the toilet, you know, so, that, so they can, and get, they get a report on it. Um, and then there are other things that we're working on that are water related. So I'm curious, um, what percentage of your customers are large businesses like hotels and versus residential? For the pro, they're all larger customers. We have we have um, a residential people that are really begging for it, but um, we they're really going to be better served eventually by an Ethernet version that we bring out. So hopefully, yeah, I don't know if that'll be out next year. We know there's a demand for it, but the Legal Order Six Thousand, the non-wireless version that sells on Amazon, that's a that is almost exclusively residents and um, small property managers. Maybe they have a, a house that's been converted to three apartments or four apartments. So you have different products that right. serve those different Right. But the pro like is that. is is really for your um your your student housing, senior housing, hotel, um, apartment owner. We have um we have a tennis club. So um, we've done we've worked with um, public housing authorities and and have really been able to help them so you know it's it's just it enables it it also we've developed it so that it, we've enabled maintenance to be incredibly efficient you know they know exactly what to fix when they walk in the room or they can lump we can the dashboard you can segregate it by location so if somebody wants to go in and fix all the toilets on the north wing they can pull the data just for that area it's just it's really it, you know, it's really made to make not only save water, but make maintenance efficient. Have you guys looked into like partnerships with toilet manufacturers or anything on the legislative side to help keep things green by using this product? Like, yes, we have. We're um, we're hoping to have some discussions with toilet manufacturers, both overseas and and uh, domestically. 
I think there was some hesitancy initially because if they have a leak detection device in their toilet, it's sort of admitting your toilet's going to leak. But I think I, I think now every, that's pretty much common knowledge, and it's not something wrong with the toilet itself. It's more the parts wear out. You know, it's parts wear out on everything these days. So and um, so, I, I we are we're hoping to start those discussions. It's interesting on the green front, we're actually getting interest from some of the electric utilities because of the amount of electricity it takes to treat in waste, um, wastewater treatment plants and just wastewater plants and to pump water to, through their um, distribution system. So if you can decrease toilet leaks, and that's a leak that stays in the system. It's not like your sprinkler leaking where it ends up on your lawn. This goes right back into the sewer system. So if, you know, to be able to decrease toilet uh, leaks, then you can decrease the electricity consumption. And that is such a, you know, that's a hot button right now because of the demand with the electric cars coming on board and where, how are we going to power everything? So we're really... Um, we're really looking at that very hard and developing relationships with electric utilities. So with the, you mentioned you um, part of H2O Connected was to bring in funding and stuff like that. What is your guys' strategy to get funding on products like this? Do you put together a pitch and go to investors or? Yes, we had some original founders that came on board and then we did a, um, I, because it's a qualified opportunity zone business that, and I wanted to attract at least part of the round with qualified opportunity zone investors, it had to be an equity raise. So, um, so we did a series A preferred equity raise and we raised a couple million bucks and, and, um, and that was, that, that enabled us to develop what we needed to develop, you know, the dashboards and the several generations of the leak alerter pro and the toilet tracker. And also it, you know, it, we had to, we, we were ready to start testing when COVID hit and nobody, we couldn't get in a building really. We had one building that would let us in, um, for testing, but, you know, so we really had two years where we we couldn't sell a product. We were pretty, you know, ready to start marketing. So um, it enabled us to to get through COVID as well. So yeah, with with marketing, it's kind of a I don't want to say a weird subject, but like with a toilet product, it's not the coolest thing to talk about, and it's also a preventative product, not an emergency situation saving thing. Unless I guess you had a ton of water leak or something and your bill went crazy. How have you guys approached marketing to reach people with that? Well, we, first of all, you go with your contacts, you start with your contacts and you start with, we call it the low hanging fruit. So the people who've had an issue with their toilets, the same thing with the legal or 6,000 when we were marketing to the general public, um, you know, we would go to trade shows, we wrote articles for magazines. I went on the, you know, different, different shows where I talk about the product. I was visible. Um, so you just getting the, getting out there, brand awareness any, any way you can. But I, we marketed on the saving, we had, you know, really the effective marketing strategies on the saving money side. Unfortunately, there's a lot of talk about saving the environment and saving water. But in general, what we've found is people will not spend money there's a very small, dedicated group. It's growing, but at least in the 2000 to 2010, 2015, up until really re in the last couple of years, 
there really hasn't been a, a wide group that was willing to spend money on the environment. It was more talk than walk. So we really focused on the saving money side. Um, and and even now, it's the, you know it's it's the fact that they can pay for it on the institutional side, the commercial side. Um, customers can pay for this system through water savings in about nine months to a year. So that's quick for a capital investment. And they're not talking about a huge investment if it's, I mean, comparatively speaking, it's if you have a hotel with a hundred um, toilets, um, there's a, you, the equipment is gonna be about $6,000 and then there's a $2 per toilet per month subscription charge. So you're not talking about tens of thousands of dollars for a hundred toilet property. Um, but so they can get that back pretty quickly. And after that, it all flows to the bottom line. So, you know, we've really hit the, you know, we've really focused on the money saving aspect and then the water. And then, and then, and then they like the green initiative on top of that. So if it was bad for the environment, I'm not sure, you know, it would be a harder sell, but, you know, now that it's a way to, and they're really when you think about it, there are a lot of different ways you can have smart temperature and smart doorbells and smart lights and smart this. If you want smart leak detection on toilets, we're it. And we're the only one that can quantify anything. So we can really, they can really, like apartment owner who wants to market to millennials, where that's really an important, the environment's very important, they can have these on their toilets and really market that as a green initiative and being sensitive to the environment on top of keeping the water bill low, which then helps the tenants. So outside of getting patents and protecting your IP, is there any other legal stuff you guys have to work around within like water conservation itself? Is that? Um, I'm not sure I understand your question. Like, is there any regulations and standards the product needs to meet as a water product in a, going into residential or commercial properties? Not anything different than any other smart device, you know, like we have to have, you know, we have to meet certain FCC standards and things like that, but, um, but not, um, it, there's nothing, it's not like a drug where you need FDA approval mm -hmm. before you can sell it. What are the regulations of a smart device? Well, just because you're dealing with wireless so you have to, you know, you have to have certain frequency regulations if you're dealing with wireless, you know. So, I mean, but that's, but again, it's not, you know, it's not industry specific. I had one other question too. Um, is this just a one-time purchase if you're purchasing this or is there like a subscription side to it? The legal order 6,000 that um, for the residents, because that's not a, there's not, that's not a wireless um data it doesn't provide data on a dashboard that's just a one-time purchase it, it you can buy it on amazon for under 35 dollars for the leak alerter pro there is a subscription um it's two dollars per month per toilet um that is just it's a three-year subscription then it just rolls over um, so the product has a five-year warranty and and really you know other than changing the battery which after five years could it could get battery can go five to seven years, that's it, it go it can continue to go for a very long time, um, and then all the upgrades we do we just push out through the dashboard. And as a business strategy, how do you like doing the subscription model versus just individual sale? Like we looked at, well, first of all, everyone's really comfortable with subscription and. 
because you're providing data and there is a cost of of retrieving that data and populating the dashboard and the wireless all the wireless um, transmission with the text messages and everything. So you you have to have a subscription to cover those costs. Um, but in the end, we will you know we will be building H two O connected to sell. Um, and so, you know, you're going to have your valuation is going to be higher with recurring revenue. And that's true across the board. I mean, when we when we are when End Solutions is advising inventors or looking at products is how do we build recurring revenue into a business model? Um, so, you know, that's really it, it, that, you know, that's a huge benefit. So with product development, like the legal order, we're at 6,000. Now it's the sixth iteration of the product. When you guys decide that, okay, it's time to upgrade it or there's something new we could put into it, what, what is the process for the, like, when you devo- develop the next generation of a product? Sometimes, for instance, right now, we're actually looking at, for the Leak Alert or 6,000, we're looking at making some small changes. Um, and it's based on market feedback. Um, we find that some people, um, so that's a device that will flash and beep if there's a problem. And depending on how, if it's a running toilet, that's a big problem because that's going to cost you a lot of money. So that flashes continuously during the flush cycle. And um, the other ones like faulty fill valve, faulty flush valve, will um, it'll flash during the flush cycle, but the beep will only happen three, four or five times during the flush cycle. Get your attention while you're still in the bathroom, but it doesn't continue during the entire flush cycle like a running toilet does. Um, and some people who are hearing challenged can't hear the the beep once they get beyond if they if they once they get beyond the bathroom, so or if they're not in the bathroom long enough before it starts. Um, so we are think we are looking at um, making the sound of the beep for the running toilet louder. We're evaluating that. So that would be an example. Mm. Um, initially, right off the bat, we. Um, we didn't have a reset button. Um, you had to reset it a different way. And so, you know, we then early on, then we were in, we incorporated a reset button because we knew people were getting frustrated about resetting resetting the unit if they had to take it out of the toilet or they, you know, they wanted to reset it after they made a repair. So we added a reset button. So a lot of it comes from market feedback. We listened, to, we really listened to our customers have you guys had any one-star reviews you had to combat? Like, I know you said that's the worst possible case scenario for a product. Yeah, you can't be on Amazon for years and not have somebody grumpy. Um, we have the we have very few. We have 173 reviews. I think maybe nine or ten of them are one-star. So 80% are either four or five-star. Um and some of them, it's been frustrating because some of them were people who just didn't understand it was actually working. Like they didn't believe their toilet had a problem. And their one-star review is, this thing doesn't work. It's going off every flush. Well, yeah, because you have a leak. <laughs> That's what it's supposed to do. Because when they describe what's going on, it's because you have a leak and they don't believe it. But they do. We know we, we know this product. We know that if it's telling you you have a leaking flapper, you have a leaking flapper. And unfortunately, Amazon really makes it impossible for you to reach out. You can't respond to it. You used to be able to respond to a review with a comment from the manufacturer. You can't anymore. Hmm. So you, you are completely um, 
you're locked out from being able to respond. Um, the only things that some people have criticized it for, for not being um, loud enough, you know, that, but then we're afraid because it, it, it's not like a smoke alarm. We're not saving a life here. So if somebody goes to the bathroom in the middle of the night, we don't want to wake up you know, somebody else in the house. Mm -hmm. So we can't have it too loud or we're going to get one-star reviews about that. So it's it's just trying to find that happy medium. We've thought about having two versions, you know, a loud version and a soft version. But we just think that's going to get to be just Can you have like too a messy. Switch, like a volume switch or No, I mean, then you, when you start doing that, you, you end up with... Um, it just gets too expensive. Right now, one of our big challenges, obviously, is the supply chain. You've heard about it with, you know, it's very, you know, parts are, be, one day you can get them, one day you can't. They're, they've become very expensive because there are now speculators in the market that are buying up parts and trying to flip them at four and five times, you know, what they paid for them. So, you know, cost is, is we have to be very careful about cost. Otherwise, it's going to take it out of the realm of possibility of, what, you know, we won't be able to hit our customer um, price target. So um, we talked a lot about the product. I want to talk just a little bit about in the business itself and solutions and H2O Connect included. How have you guys dealt with staffing and having employees in the building? Like, how do you guys go about hiring, managing people? You said it's very horizontal, but you still at the end of the day are responsible for getting things done. Right. How do you guys go about dealing with that as a business? On the engineering side, it's come through... Uh, some of them have been our interns who actually have stayed on and either gone to school remotely afterwards or have just learned so much on the side that, you know, they've, you know, and engineers are a really interesting group because a lot of them, they are so committed and so fascinated by what they do. A lot of them can really learn so much of what they need to know, especially when you, when you get into um, software development and, um, you know, cloud architects and things like that. They can learn so much of what they need to know on their own. So we've, we've, um, so through contacts and then um, we, we haven't really had great success with posting job, posting for jobs. Actually, we just met somebody that were, you know, we just hired somebody in engineering that we did get through I'm trying to remember where they came through an Amazon job posting. I wasn't involved in the job posting, but did come through a job posting. And but but most everybody has come through either a referral or a contact or the or the internship program. That's something we've been hearing a lot through a, a lot of people we interview is when it comes to hiring, referrals is definitely the best. And well, a big part of our culture is being able to play nice in the sandbox. So, and we are such a unique company that we know we're going to need to train on the job. No matter what you know, you're going to need to train on the job. And um, so we're, we want someone to know, have the basic skills, but, you know, but cultural fit. And I, I mean, that just in, that's not a, a race or gender thing. It's just, you know, just do you do you fit with how we are and do you like working in our environment right um so um so we it's really important for us that we're able to and we don't we don't have remote workers you i do not believe that you can develop product efficiently through that concept of commercialization or even h2o connected on the sales side doing everything remote 
Selling, you can do somewhat remote. We do have one, H2O Connected. We have a phenomenal salesperson that's been in the industry, plumbing industry for years, and he, he's remote, but everybody else is in-house. So so what's like the day-to-day -day operations look like in-house? Um, the engineering team actually usually comes in around uh, 10, 30, 11, and stays through 7, 30 to 8 o'clock. Uh, we're very on the task rather than on the clock. Um, there are times they take a break to go play ping pong upstairs because <laughs> they just need to think about something. Um, and then on the sales and administrative and side, that's usually either people come in between 8.30 and 9 and stay till 6. And, you know, but again, on the task rather than the clock. But so it's a very much a startup environment. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, so that's so that's how we we function. So how have you guys dealt with the supply chain issues we're dealing with after COVID and everything going on in the world markets right now? Well, in the electronic component, um, looking at it from buying electronic components, every purchase is now an engineering exercise because when we go to buy parts for the next build, if a part's not available, we have to find an alternate part. I just can't have a purchasing person do that. That's my engineer now has to do it. And do we need to redesign the board to be able to fit with this part? And, you know, is this part going to be available, you know, only for the next nine months? Or do we have a couple of years? I mean, do we? So I mean, how much do we buy? There are things that we just buy what we, you know, when we can find it, whether we need it or not, because we know we're going to need the parts down the road, and we want to have them in case they get scarce. So it's really it's it's um it's a challenge we you know it hasn't it's impacted us it hasn't crippled us there are some you know that there are some industries it's just have really had a hard time but it's it's a challenge and you have to constantly be thinking ahead what are the parts that are hardest to get like is it microchips or or what it just depends i mean it it goes in waves you know um so it's just it's it, just a lot of them, you know, it's, you know, I just know that I, I, I don't, I'm not involved in purchasing. That's on the engineering side. Um, we, my, you know, we have somebody who does the purchasing, but selecting the parts is on the engineering side. But it, it, there's a lot of frustration and, you know, having to source parts and, and having to take, you know, an engineer's time. It used to be, you know, we just, we had a, a build of materials, a bomb and, you bought what you needed for the next round, and it was it showed up either next day or two days later. And now we want something, and we're told it's 52 weeks out. And that's their way of saying we don't know when we're going <laughs> to send it to you. Um, so can't do that. You know, people have leaking toilets. So we have to figure another way around it. And that's where we are really good at pivoting, changing on the fly, thinking things through it. It, I, I can't say enough about my team. Yeah, so I'm very, very blessed to have them. So what are the future plans for End Solutions and H2O Connected? Well, and with End Solutions, it's continuing. We have, um, we, we're incubating a technology right now that's pretty revolutionary in the automotive industry. I can't really go into it very much, but um, we have an, a full we have an automotive lab in in our facility now and we're really excited about that so you know taking that through the proof of concept we're pretty much we're almost a proof of concept now i mean we we um we've been able to get it to work but we want to get a little further along um 
and package it a little uh, just so it's in a little more of a finished state but it works it's amazing um and then with h2o can and then possibly bring on another you know another uh contract we're very we're very good at applying sensor technology um to lower tech industries that are just now getting data driven um, we can do that very cost effectively and um and that's a you know that's a wide open market for us so anybody out there who wants to know more about your processes and have them streamlined with data call me um and then on the h2o connected side um it's it's we're ready to scale you know we've we've had installations across our various verticals you know the student housing and hotels and apartments and senior housing and um, we're now we've dialed in we've tweaked the software we've gone through that sort of initial rollout and now we're really ready to scale we're hoping to we're talking with a potential partner in europe so that would be great if that works out uh, we're talking to some other um, major partners that would be really good strategic fits for us um, so it's you know sc scaling it and and dominating the market do you um did you have a question do you have any tips or recommendations for people who might have a product or are looking to develop a business around a product well start with market you know we've talked about that um, um, if it's a product you want to decide whether you have something that is patentable or can be patented or whether you want to keep your secret sauce a trade secret um, on h2o connected you know we do patents we don't you don't always want to put everything in the patent because that has a limited gives you a limited monopoly so when the patent expires and you've basically given someone a roadmap to copy your product so we keep a lot of a lot of proprietary information as trade secrets so that's something that you want to um think about um and and then um it's just i would advise people to actually do a full business plan right now a lot of people try to get away with just doing a pitch deck or just doing an outline or an executive summary going through the whole business plan exercise will unearth your strengths your weaknesses your opportunities your threats right so you'll, you'll and you'll and if you're going to raise money it really helps you dial in everything you need your investors are going to ask you um, and then it's um, I would encourage people if they have a product to really make it in the US you have control over your quality um, there's a book out there called poorly made in China read it it's uh, you know the we don't have enough time in the scope of this podcast <laughs> so I would really encourage I would really in encourage people to make their products here um, the control the la it's harder for China to 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 knock it off it's there's lots of reasons um, and um, I don't know that it just I guess those are some things that that come to mind great and any announcements or anything you want to share about and solutions or h2o connected um, well I'm writing a chapter in a book that'll be published in January called um, I'm trying they're still working on the title but I think it's the secrets of successful women inventing so I write the process chapter um, the concept commercialization chapter so I'm, I'm really um, I thought I think that they haven't quite 
um, decided on a title, but it's going to be something like that. So it'll be out in January. Um, and um, we're just really excited to be in Coatesville. I tell you, if somebody hasn't looked at Coatesville as an up-and-coming place to have a business or live, they really should take a look at it. We've got a great city management, super police force, crimes way down, great architecture, five restaurants moving in, you know, hopefully a new community center. We've got our innovation center in the West End and a new office building going in in the middle of town. Um, new train station, R5's coming back. I can go on and on and on. So I want to put my little plug in for my city. It's a great community. It's just the people, there's a vibe there that you don't find in the suburbs. It's a gritty and 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 survivalist and they're loyal and it's just very, very entrepreneurial and it's just a great city. Okay. And yeah, if anyone has product ideas, they're welcome to call you guys and do their consultation? Yeah, absolutely. And if they have a lot of toilets, if they are worried that their toilets are leaking, we would love to talk to them about, you know, show them our dashboard and give them a pitch and show them how they can save water and save money. Okay. Well, Susan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has really been a lot of fun. Stories from the Top is your guide to successful business development. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find Edge of Cinema on YouTube. Stories from the Top is an Edge of Cinema production hosted by Matthew Skura and Jeremy Schmidt. To learn more or get in touch, visit edgeofcinema.com slash podcast.